poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you until the end of the hour. Today, back by popular demand, we have another Shakespeare and the 80s musical adventure. And I have met so many great Shakespeare enthusiasts this past year that this novelty may just continue to grow. Now, you may remember a few months back, I set the challenge for a couple of Bohemians to source Shakespearean links to a covert Bohemian Beat 80s playlist, demanding airtime. This time, the challenge was sort of reversed but in bohemian beat fashion. So to all you lovers of Shakespeare out there, musically tainted by the 80s and not ashamed of those pale blue jeans, teased hair, glitter, shoulder pads, high waist pants, tracky dacks, this show today is for you. Starring Suze, Jenny, Lydia, Yasser, Alistair and Paul. But first... Let's ease in with an 80s classic from that 1984 cult TV series, Sweet and Sour, about the fictitious band The Takeaways trying to break into the Sydney music scene.
Exquisite takeaways with sweet and sour. Do we have control of anything in our lives? Are we doomed to fates and personal mechanics that deem it either sweet or sour? Life ended pretty sourly for Prince Hamlet of Denmark. Now, I wonder if this is what makes Hamlet the most frequently performed play around the world. Did you know that it has been calculated that a performance of Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, begins everywhere in the world every minute of every day? So as not to be excluded, here we are! (laughs) In the tragedy, Prince Hamlet of Denmark deeply mourns the recent death of his father and resents his mother's remarriage to his uncle Claudius, who has become king. The ghost of Hamlet's father appears and tells a prince... Claudius murdered him. Hamlet broods about whether he should believe the ghost. Shakespeare focused the play on the deep conflict within the thoughtful and idealistic Hamlet as he is torn between the demands of his emotions and the hesitant scepticism of his mind, beautifully expressed as an existential crisis in Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. This is the most searched for Shakespearean quote on the internet. And here to read that famous verse is Yesser. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die to sleep to sleep Perchance to dream, ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong? The proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would Fardell's bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose bourne no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry, 
and lose the name of action. by The Fix. 
You are listening to The Bohemian Beat, and today we are enjoying Shakespeare with tracks from the 80s. And now we will delight you with a few scenes from Act 1 of Shakespeare's five-act tragedy, The Tragedy of Macbeth, considered to have been first performed in 1606. The tragedy dramatises the damaging physical and psychological effects of political ambition on those who seek power for its own sake. The play is set in Scotland. Macbeth is a general in the army of King Duncan. The tragedy begins with three witches before a boiling cauldron. And now, magically, all the way from Shakespeare's imagination, the witches from Macbeth have magically manifested into the Byron Bay Studios. Hello, witches from Macbeth. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. Good to be here. Thanks for summoning us. How are you enjoying Byron Bay? Too hot, like prickling my skin. What's all this gluten-free food? Too many optimists about. All right, that's, that's great. Let us begin with Act 1, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's play Macbeth. We are inside a large cavern, and in the middle of the cavern is a boiling cauldron, and then there is a crack of thunder. Boom! Okay, a, a boom of thunder. And enter the three witches. Where are our brooms? To the cavern? Oh, what? And, no, 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 not physically. We don't have to go anywhere. Remember we do this vocally. Remember what I told you ladies about how we needed to adapt it to radio? Yes, yes, yes. yes. let's begin. We are now in the cavern before our boiling cauldron. Thrice the brindled cat hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whine. Harpier cries, tis time, tis time. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Double. it under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one. Welted venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. I Newton toe a frog, full of bat and tongue a dog. Adder's fork and blind worm sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like a hellbound boil and bubble. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, moor and gulf, of the ravened salt sea shark, root of hemlock, digged in a dark, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of you, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, Ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab, and there to a tiger's chowdron for the ingredients of our cauldron. <laughs> double, double, fire, trouble, fire, burn, cauldron, bubble. Cool it with the baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. It is these mysterious hags who set the tone of the play by plotting mischief against Macbeth using charms, spells and prophecies. We love mischief! What is life without a bit of 
You ladies sure like mischief. However, it is a witch's prediction that prompts Macbeth to murder Duncan. Who do we hurt? They choose their interpretation. Yes, yes, the witches do tell Macbeth direct directly not to kill King Duncan. Instead, a more subtle form of temptation is used when they tell Macbeth that he is destined to be king. By placing this thought in his mind, the witches effectively guide him on the path of his own destruction. This follows the pattern of temptation used at the time of Shakespeare. A thought is put in a man's mind, then the person may either indulge in the thought or reject it. Macbeth indulges in it while Banquo rejects. What is their true nature? What makes prophecy come true? We delight in our futuristic knowledge. Thanks, ladies. Now in this next scene, we introduce Macbeth. Hello, community radio listeners. I'm Macbeth. I seized the throne of Scotland in 1040 after defeating and killing King Duncan I. However, my life has been distorted by Shakespeare's play now that I have had centuries to reflect, I don't mind anymore. Better to be remembered as a distortion in a literary imagination than not at all. If you say so, the play is written as a tragedy of a man's conscience. During the course of the play, Macbeth changes from a person of strong but imperfect moral sense to a man who will stop at nothing to get what he wants. In the following scene, Macbeth and his friend Banquo come across the witches. Act 1, scene 3. We are in a heath near the Scottish town of Forres. There is the... There is thunder! Boom! Then the witches enter the scene. A drum! A drum! Macbeth doth come! The weird sisters, hand in hand, posters of the sea and land, thus do go about, about... Thrice to thine, and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. Peace, the charms wound up. And now Macbeth and his friend Banquo enter the scene. So foul and fair a day I have not seen. How far is called to forest? What are these, so withered and so wild in their attire that look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aunt? Live you, or are you aught that man may question? You seem to understand me by each at once her chappy finger laying upon her skinny lips. You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. Speak, if you can. What are you? All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glams. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Cordor. All hail, Macbeth. Thou shalt be king hereafter. Good sir. Why do you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? In the name of truth, are ye fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly ye show? My noble partner, you greet with present grace and great prediction of noble having and of royal hope, that he seems wrapped with all. To me you speak not. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, then speak to me, who neither beg nor fear your favours nor your hate. And greater. Not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So all hail, Macbeth and Banquo. Banquo and Macbeth, all hail. Stay, you imperfect speakers. Tell me more. By Sinal's death, I know I am the Thane of Glams, but how of Cordor? 
the Thane of Cawdor lives a prosperous gentleman, and to be king stands not within the prospect of belief, no more than to be Cawdor. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, or why upon this blasted heath you stop our way with such prophetic greed. Speak, I charge you! The witches vanish. However, after the first part of the witch's prophecy comes true, Macbeth begins to think the second part might also come true. He writes a letter to his wife. It is late in the first act, scene five, when Lady Macbeth makes her first appearance. She learns in a letter from her husband that three witches have prophesied his future as king. When King Duncan becomes her overnight guest, Lady Macbeth seizes the opportunity to effect his murder. In the following part, Lady Macbeth is in... Macbeth's castle in Inverness, reading the letter from her husband. They met me in the day of success, and I have learned by the perfectest report that they have more in them than mortal knowledge. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves heir, into which they vanished. Whilst I stood wrapped in the wonder of it, came missives from the king, who all hailed me, Thane of Cawdor, by which title before these seed weird sisters saluted me, and referred me to the coming on of time, with hail, king that shalt be. This I have thought good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatness, that thou mightst not lose the dues of rejoicing by these ignorant of what greatness is promised thee. Lay it to thy heart, and farewell. Immediately after Lady Macbeth finishes the letter, her mind goes to work. Her words shan't be uncannily reflect those of the witch's prophecy. At this point, Lady Macbeth herself has virtually become an agent of fate. But immediately her thoughts turn to the possible failings in her husband. Glums thou art, and Cawdor, and shalt be. What thou art promised, yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou wholly, wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Wouldst thou have great glums, that which cries, thus thou must do, if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do, than wishest should be undone. Hie thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. Who is it that enters? A messenger. What is your tidings? The king comes here tonight. Thou'rt mad to say it. Is not thy master with him, who were so would have informed the preparation? So please you, it is true, our thane is coming. One of my fellows had the speed of him, who almost dead for breath had scarcely more than would make up his message. Give him tending. He brings great news. The messenger exits. Lady Macbeth continues with her plotting. It is interesting to note that Lady Macbeth is one of the most powerful female characters in literature. The fact that we meet her alone on the stage means that we are privy to her innermost thoughts which are filled with the imagery of death and destruction. And when she speaks in her next piece of her fell purpose, her intentions are described in the most grotesque and frightening terms. The raven himself is hoarse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, 
You spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breast and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, and pour thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, hold, hold! And now Macbeth enters the castle. His wife greets him in a way that again recalls the words of the witches. The dialogue that follows their initial encounter is fast, urgent and disturbing. Shakespeare uses half-line breaks to identify the drama of the moment, each partner in crime picking up the rhythm of the other's speech. Great glams, worthy cordor, greater than both by all hail hereafter. Thy letters have transported me beyond this ignorant presence, and I feel now the future in the instant. My dearest love, Duncan comes here tonight. And when goes hence? Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see. Your face, my vein, is as a book where men may read strange matters to beguile the time, look like the time, bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. We will speak further. Only look up clear. To alter favour ever is to fear. Leave all the rest to me. All the children testified that Miss Macbeth had a fishbone slide In her cobweb dresses Her eyes were black and spurs with cold Clutched as white as chalk dust Her fingers sweated in beauty Empires in pen letters There is a hungry hanging tree Just below your bedroom window You can hear Ran red inside, but was she really evil? Was she only pantomime?
a godly walk She chucks under the chin And she whispers to it tenderly Then sticks it on a pin And it might be coincidence But a boy down the lane That she said went white as he could do Then doubled over in pain And every day to the Bohemian Beat, broadcasting nationally since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard Elvis Costello with Miss Macbeth. And before that, the Bohemian Collective performing parts from the tragedy of Macbeth by William Shakespeare. From witches to fairies. In Shakespeare's plays, fairies are not evil like witches, but they are not benevolent either. Shakespeare uses fairies as major characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream. The mischievous fairy Puck and Oberon and Titania, the king and queen of the fairies, portrayed as temperamental and an immature couple incapable of raising a child. Oberon and Titania personify the forces of nature. When they love each other, is everything is good in nature, and when they quarrel, nature is in turmoil. Shakespeare has given Titania magnificent lines, allowing all of nature to participate in their quarrel. This is Lydia as Titania in a small excerpt from A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 2, Scene 1. These are the forgeries of jealousy, and never since the middle summer's spring met we on hill, in dale, forest or mead, by paved fountain or by rushy brook, or in the beached margent of the sea, to dance our ringlets to the whistling wind, but with thy brawls thou hast disturbed our sport. Therefore the winds, piping us in vain, as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs, which falling in the land have every pelting river made so proud that they have overborne their continents. The ox hath therefore stretched his yoke in vain, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and the crows are fatted with the murrian flock. The nine men's morris is filled up with mud, and the quaint mazes in the wanton green for lack of tread are undistinguishable. The human mortals want their winter cheer. No night is now with him or carol blessed, Therefore the moon, the governess of floods, pale in her anger, washes all the air that rheumatic diseases do abound, and through this distemperature we see the seasons alter. Hoary-headed frosts, far in the fresh lap of the crimson rose, and on old Hemon's thin and icy crown, an odorous chaplet of sweet summer buds is as in mockery set. The spring, the summer, the chilling autumn, Angry winter change their wanted liveries, and in the mazed world, by their increase, now knows not which is which. And this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. We are their parents and original. 
Now let's travel a little further down scene one from Act Two of Shakespeare's comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, when the connection between love and masochism is treated with humour and pity in an exchange between Helena and Demetrius. After Hermia elopes to the forest with her lover Lysander, going against the wishes of her father to marry Demetrius, her friend Helena, who is in fact desperately in love with Demetrius, pursues him into the forest. However, Demetrius' affections have turned towards Hermia, and he follows the lovers into the forest to duel with Lysander and claim Hermia for his bride. Helena continues to romantically pursue him, even though he treats her badly. This next scene from Midsummer Night's Dream stars Suze as Helena and Yasser as Demetrius. I love thee not, therefore pursue me not. Where is Lysander and fair Hermia? The one I'll slay, the other slayeth me. Thou toldst me they were stolen unto this wood, and here am I, and woed within this wood, because I cannot meet my Hermia. Hence, get thee gone, and follow me no more. You draw me, you hard-hearted adamant, but yet you draw not iron, for my heart is true as steel. Leave you your power to draw, and I shall have no power to follow you. Do I entice you? Do I speak you fair? Or rather, do I not in plainest truth tell you I do not, nor I cannot love you? And even for that do I love you the more. I am your spaniel, and Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. Only give me leave, unworthy as I am, to follow you. What worse a place can I beg in your love, and yet a place of high respect with me, than to be used as you use your dog? Tempt not too much the hatred of my spirit, for I am sick when I do look on thee. And I am sick when I look not on you. Do not impeach your modesty too much to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not. To trust the opportunity of night and the ill counsel of a desert place with the rich worth of your virginity. Your virtue is my privilege for that it is not night when I do see your face, therefore I think I am not in the night. Nor doth the wood luck worlds of company, for you in my respect are all the world. Then how can it be said that I am alone when all the world is here to look on me? I'll run from thee and hide me in the brakes and leave thee to the mercy of wild beasts. The wildest have not such a heart as you. Run when you will, the story shall be changed. Apollo flies and Daphne holds the chase. The dove pursues the griffin. The mild hind makes speed to catch the tiger. Bootless speed when cowardice pursues and valour flies. I will not stay thy questions. Let me go. Or, if thou follow me, do not believe but I shall do thee mischief in the wood. I in the temple, in the town, in the field you do me mischief. Fie, Demetrius, your wrongs do set a scandal on my sex. We cannot fight for love as men may do. We should be wooed, and we're not made to woo. I'll follow thee and make a heaven of hell to die upon the hand I love so well.
is a bohemian beat and today we are continuing this rediscovery of Shakespeare's genius through the music, words and spirit of the 1980s. Another one of Shakespeare's great dramas is Othello, The Moor of Venice, a five-act tragedy first performed in 1604. Othello differs from most of Shakespeare's other tragedies because it does not deal with the public affairs and royalty. Instead, Othello is a tragedy of personal tensions, love and hatred, jealousy and impatience. The story revolves around four central characters, Othello, a Moorish general in the Venetian army, his beloved wife, Desdemona, his loyal lieutenant, Cassio, and his trusted but ultimately unfaithful ensign, Iago. The play's dramatic core consists of scenes in which Iago, a master of psychological manipulation, convinces Othello that Desdemona has been unfaithful to him with Cassio. In this next short piece from Act 3, scene 4 of Othello, Desdemona looks for Cassio to tell him he has been pardoned for causing a disturbance of which the devious Iago had orchestrated against him. Desdemona is before the castle and engages with a clown, starring Jenny as Desdemona, Suze as Amelia and Alistair as the clown. Do you know, Sarah, where Lieutenant Cassio lies? I dare not say he lies anywhere. Why, man? He's a soldier. And one, for one to say a soldier lies, is stabbing. Go to, where lodges he? To tell you where he lodges is to tell you where I lie. Can anything be made of this? I know not where he lodges, and for me to devise a lodging and to say he lies here or he lies there were to lie in mine own throat. Can you inquire him out and be edified by report? I will catechise the word for him. That is, make questions and by them answer. Seek him, bid him come hither, tell him I have moved my lord on his behalf and hope all will be well. To do this is within the compass of a man's wit and therefore I will attempt the doing it. The devious Iago gets his wife Amelia, Desdemona's maid, to steal a handkerchief given to Desdemona by Othello. Iago ensures that the handkerchief comes into Cassio's possession and that Othello sees Cassio with it. In this next little piece, Desdemona searches for her handkerchief, still unaware of the depth of the deception. Where should I lose that handkerchief, Amelia? I know not, madam. Believe me, I had rather have lost my purse full of crusados and but my noble moor is true of mind, and made of no such baseness as jealous creatures are. It were enough to put him to ill-thinking. Is he not jealous? Who he? I think the sun where he was born drew all such humours from him. Who broke my heart? You did, you did. But 
the bohemian beat i'm ready and we just heard poison arrow from abc today on the show by popular demand we have been featuring another shakespeare in the 80s musical adventure i would like to thank today's bohemian collective jenny suze lydia yessa alistair and paul for joining us in the studio thanks guys (laughs) okay we've got a very enthused collective Okay, well, I will be back next week, same beat time, same bohemian frequency, for more poetic entertainment. And for more information, check out thebohemianbeat.com. We will end with a piece from Shakespeare's historical play, Richard III, written around 1592. The play deals with the end of the Wars of the Roses. It depicts the Machiavellian rise to power and subsequent short reign of King Richard III of England. In this part from scene four in the London Tower, the Duke of Clarence, brother of King Edward IV and Richard III, realises he helped destroy many lives during the bloody civil wars. And Shakespeare reminds us that after our wicked or wonderful lives, we all become nothing more than fish food or food for worms, as in Hamlet. The Duke of Clarence delivers this speech read by Paul shortly before the murderers come to kill him.
Thank you for joining us on the Bohemian Beat. Oh, I have passed a miserable night, so full of ugly sights, of ghastly dreams, that as I am a Christian faithful man, I would not spend another such a night, though to, to buy a world of happy days, so full of dismal terror was the time. Methoughts that I had broken from the tower and was embarked across to Burgundy, and in my company, my brother Gloucester, who from my cabin tempted me to walk upon the hatches. Thence we looked towards England and sighted up a thousand fearful times during the wars of York and Lancaster that had befallen us. As we paced along upon the giddy footing of the hatches, methought that Gloucester stumbled and in falling struck me that thought to stay him overboard into the tumbling billows of the main. Lord, Lord, methought, what a pain it was to drown. What dreadful noise of waters in mine ears. What ugly sights of death within mine eyes. Methought I saw a thousand fearful wrecks, ten thousand men that fishes gnawed upon, wedges of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl, inestimable stones, unvalued jewels, all scattered in the bottom of the sea. Some lay in dead men's skulls, and in those holes where eyes did once inhabit, there were crept as twere in scorn of eyes, reflecting gems, which wooed the slimy bottom of the deep, and mocked the dead bones that lay scattered by. Look at me stand.